Thank you, Pastor. Good to see you all. <laughs> On Friday, uh, I uh, moved uh, six hours. For six hours, we moved my daughter out of her apartment. Um, and I was one of the two moving men. I'm old. I'm a very old man. And that is very clear to me today. Um, and so right now, I am sitting gingerly, hoping that my back will not snap in half as I attempt to, uh, to lead this morning. So when I was in college 40 years ago, I had a summer job, two summers, moving furniture all day long, every day. And um, I'm not in college anymore. I would like to clarify that uh, at this time. So anyway, um, pray for my back. And uh, it's good to be with you all and good to be with those who are uh, watching uh, on uh, Facebook. This is the book. I'll do a little bit of advertising. There's some interesting features about this book. For one thing, there's the awful picture on the cover of the author. That's not something that I've ever wanted. I didn't ask for that this time, but it's what they did. Um, only Joel Osteen has a picture of himself on every book, and I'm not Joel Osteen. He's a prettier man than I am. And so, but anyway, this is the book. It, it, is, it releases on February 28th. There's interesting features about the book. One is that... Uh, the wonderful publishers, Front Edge Publishing, have, um, we've done, and Jeremy helped me do this. Where is Jeremy? Is he around somewhere? Um, we audio and videotaped every word in this book. And so the book is a multimedia product. You can actually scan uh, a barcode and you can pull up the lectures on a phone or on a computer. Um, and so uh, the book can be accessed as an ebook, as a print book, as audio lectures or as videos. Um, and so when my uh, seven-year-old grandson discovered that, he, he thought this was the coolest book ever. And so he, he immediately scanned one of the lectures and said, hey, there's Pops, you know? So, so anyway, this is fun. Uh, I think it's, it's getting really good uh, endorsements from really fine people, and I'm feeling pretty excited about getting it out in the world. So anyway, thank you for being among the very first people to, to engage this book. So um, this uh, theme, uh, rather provocatively titled, uh, Why is Following Jesus So Hard, uh, is based on the concluding chapter of this book. And um, uh, I'm going to do a little bit of review each week because you never can assume that people were able to be for the first one. So let's go to the first slide and um, talk about what we said last week, try to drive some of those points home and then uh, move forward. So we're dealing with some really uh, important basic themes, I think, in um, the Christian life. Uh, so the first thing I wanted to say last week is that being a Christian is about following Jesus where Jesus leads us. Um, I talked about how my thumbnail sketch of what a Christian is, is somebody who is grateful for, for God's saving grace in Jesus, accepts Jesus Christ, a person who accepts Jesus Christ as Savior, who believes in Jesus, who believes certain things about Jesus, um, such as that he is the incarnate Son of God, the Word made flesh, that his death on the cross um, saves humanity from our sins. Um, but also that a believer is somebody uh, who is committed to Christ as Lord, 
um, which basically means the director, boss, or king of our lives, that a Christian is somebody who is committed to Jesus Christ as Lord. And this involves uh, doing the will of God as Jesus taught it. And I, I quoted from Matthew 7 where Jesus said, not everyone who calls me Lord or says they believe in me uh, will enter the kingdom, but only those who do the will of God the Father. So doing God's will as Jesus taught it, following Jesus' direction and path. Um, and, and John helped me to put this in here, having a heart fully devoted to Jesus as Lord. By the way, any good teacher is always learning from the community with which one is teaching, and so thank you for that. Um, that the way of, of Christian discipleship is a holistic path of belief, practice, commitment, heart, a path of following. Um, so next slide. Um, but following Jesus is hard for a number of reasons. Um, one is because even though we are committed Christians, we remain sinners. Luther said, Martin Luther said that the Christian is simul justus et peccator, which is Latin. Luther was a smart dude who could speak Latin, okay, and write Latin, but that means simultaneously justified or forgiven and still a sinner. That's true of every Christian. Uh, we are not now exempt from sinful tendencies or things that carry us away from, from what a faithful path of following Jesus looks like. This, so this is our reality, simultaneously forgiven and still sinful. Um, also, I said uh, unequivocally uh, last week that we are, I accept Jesus' teaching that we are still opposed by an enemy with a capital E, um, uh, a demonic realm uh, in which um, there are powers that seek to destroy and misdirect human lives. Um, also that there are many cultural forces in every society, um, but it seems sometimes, especially in our society right now, that beset us and, and mislead us and misdirect us and take us on the wrong path. Um, and, you know, one could name any number of things, but one that comes to mind right now is uh, rampant individualism, or how about greed, or insensitivity to the suffering of other people, or uh, um, the use and abuse of all kinds of substances. There are, are a variety of cultural forces that, uh, that easily can take us on the wrong path. And I also believe that following Jesus is hard because he said it is hard, um, that, uh, that the path is wide that leads to destruction and the path is narrow that leads to life. So the overall um, picture that I was painting last week is, is of the beautiful journey of following Jesus, but it is more difficult than just saying we're a believer, just saying uh, or joining a church or getting baptized, that it is a path of wholehearted commitment. Uh, and that is the journey that we're on. Uh, next slide. This then gives us some implications for what it means to be the church. And I I believe your pastor would endorse the summary that I'm about to offer. If not, you can kick me out now, Jim, all right? Um, what is the church? What is a true church? The church is called to be a community of serious followers of Jesus. Um, and not just people who nominally say that they are Christians rather than some other religion. 
And that when the church gathers, we gather to be fueled up for the life of discipleship. In other words, it's like going to the gas station so you have sufficient spiritual fuel to be a faithful follower of Jesus. So the role of, of those who play in worship services and educational programs at church is to provide some really good protein, some really good fuel for the journey, right? And that happens here every week. Um, the church is, is a community where we gain direction, where we get fueled up, and where we get support in our shared commitment to following Jesus. We're, we're maybe for the first time all week around people who share a vision of life with us, which is we want to follow Jesus. And, and we have maybe have a certain understanding of what that looks like. And this is uh, a polite way of saying there's a lot of divisions within Christianity. Not everybody has the same vision of what it means to follow Jesus faithfully. So th one reason that it's good that there are lots of different churches is that is that we can each hopefully find a place where we can agree on a certain version of what following Jesus faithfully looks like. Uh, and here, one of the reasons we joined here, one of the reasons I'm so happy to be here is, I believe in a vision of following Jesus faithfully in a church in which everybody is welcome, and not just some people. And um, everybody who wants to follow Jesus seriously is welcome. That's something that I believe in very strongly. Um, the church is a community of mutual care and gracious accountability. Uh, mutual care, meaning we're not just people who are trying to follow Jesus, we're also hurting people and, and people who, who, who deal with, with physical problems and emotional problems and, and uh, job problems and financial problems and, and family problems. And, and so it is hard enough to cope with everyday life. And sometimes life is just filled with one crisis after another. But even in such circumstances, we're attempting to follow Jesus faithfully. So another way to say it is a good church is a community of people who are broken in many ways, but who in our shared brokenness are still trying to follow Jesus. Not because we're perfect, not because we're better than other people, but because this is the commitment that we've made with our lives. We're going to try to follow Jesus, and we're going to lean on each other to help us do that. Um, in a community of gracious accountability, and both words are important, gracious, a community where we're constantly reminding one another of God's grace to us and extending grace to each other, but also accountability where we are able and willing to expect things of each other, to ask things of each other. Um, the, the classic word for this is covenant. I don't know how much you talk about covenant community here, um, but I, I think it's an important part of especially Baptist vocabulary, that in a sense, a church, baby, woo, I love it, um, a church that is a true church is a, a church where people have made a commitment to Christ and each other in community. And um, among the commitments is to help one another follow Jesus faithfully um, and to do that in community. And there's nothing quite like having sisters and brothers on the journey with us and not having to do it by ourselves. Uh, many people attempt to do the Christian life essentially on their own and that doesn't work very well. We need one another. So if you're especially like right now, if you are on Facebook uh, watching, I'm glad that you are. I still would say, Find a community of flesh and blood people who you can do this journey with. Okay, so let's go to the fourth 
slide now, the next slide. Um, so last week I introduced the uh, four box diagram um, called Four Dimensions of Character, or four, or I'll just basically, it's an overall picture of how the human mind works, how, how, um, how moral decisions are processed. And so in the next weeks, we're gonna be working through each of these four boxes. And last week, we started looking at the upper right box, the, the way of reasoning box. And so let me try to review and go a little bit deeper about, about this. Um, there's two ways to look at this four box diagram. One is how things are supposed to work as we get some resources for following Jesus. Another is where things can go wrong. So I didn't say enough about how things are supposed to work on that upper right box last time, so let me now kind of pick up there, okay? So what the um, upper right box is trying to say is that part of following Jesus, if you start from the top there, is that we, using our um, God-given and hopefully God-refined minds, we learn to make specific decisions in specific circumstances that are faithful decisions, that are wise decisions. What job do I take? Two job interviews on Tuesday, right? What job do I take? Um, what vocation do I pursue? Um, how do I relate to my family? Um, how do I relate uh, you know, to a neighbor who I'm having trouble with? Um, how do I handle money? What do I do in this or that specific situation? The idea is that Christian people, if this is how it's supposed to work, approach every particular decision equipped with a set of resources that are drawn from our faith. Among these, for example, are the rules and practices um, that Jesus teaches. Um, uh, uh, another one, um, is the um, principles and virtues that are articulated in the Bible. Another is the character qualities that, that um, are projected in the New Testament and empowered by the Holy Spirit. So I was, I was thinking of some of these. So like rules and principles that are taught in the faith. Things like um, covenant, like love, Justice, mercy, forgiveness, truthfulness, and so on. In other words, if we are serious about Scripture and serious about Jesus, we don't just flounder around as we make specific decisions. We have resources. These resources have been taught. They've been taught in church. They're taught by Jesus. They're modeled by Jesus and by fellow Christians. The, the, uh, this book has a number of chapters on some of these, but like... Um, I, I name five core, um, you might say, norms in the Christian faith, and they include truthfulness, the sacredness of every life, love, justice, and forgiveness. We have all five of those clearly taught in the Christian faith, and so in every specific situation, we always have these in mind, or should, do the loving thing act with justice, speak the truth, be ready to offer forgiveness, um, and so on. Uh, treat people with dignity. 
recognize the God-given worth of every person, right? So um, part of an informed Christian faith is constantly, you might say, marinating in these principles and norms and teachings of the faith and, and trying to bring that to bear on every situation. Even when it's hard, even when we're frustrated, even when we think we've been mistreated, even when we're just not feeling very good on a given day, right? Also, we've been taught character qualities. Um, were any of you ever asked to memorize the fruit of the Spirit list in Galatians 5, right? That's a pretty good one, right? Remember this? Who can say it with me? The fruit of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, humility, or self-control. There's different translations a little bit, right? Um, Jeremy has been to church. Did you hear Jeremy did that? That's pretty good. And once or twice, and I heard it from a number of you as well, right? By the way, scripture memorization, an old school practice, helps to inscribe some of these things in our minds so that we remember, if I am a follower of Jesus, with the help of the Holy Spirit, I'm supposed to bring into every situation love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, humility, self-control, something like that, gentleness. There's also the, the list in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, like blessed are the poor in spirit, you know, uh, mercy, peacemaking, um, and so on. So um, when things are working as they're supposed to work, we are resourced for the following of Jesus by this repertoire of principles, practices, virtues, teachings, rules even. I think Jesus taught it as a rule that we're supposed to forgive people. I don't think it's optional. Jesus taught as a rule that we're supposed to love people including our enemies. So we have all of this. Um, and so when things are working as they should, we approach specific situations. We have a repertoire of teachings, a way of thinking about them that should lead to the proper response, right? But as I, as I tried, we also have the ultimate vision of life, which is at the bottom of that. The ultimate vision is that vision of following Jesus all the way through our life and all the way through to eternity. Um, isn't that beautiful? It should work great, right? It never goes wrong because we're perfect? We're not, right? So one of the things I was trying to teach in that upper right box is that, uh, go to the next slide, um, is that our reasoning can jump the tracks in a lot of different ways. It's not necessarily that we didn't learn love, joy, peace, patience, or love your enemy, or, or sacredness of every life, or do the just and fair thing, or treat people with dignity. It's that tangled up in, um, in our instincts, or impulses, our anger, our frustration, our weariness, our minds can jump the tracks, and we can move into patterns of thinking that make an absolute butchery of what Jesus taught us to do. Um, and in the chapter, I highlight uh, the problems of rationalization and self-deception. Rationalization, the mistaken use of reason to justify what should not be justified. The human mind is a powerful thing. It can make arguments of, and, and I have a student in one of my classes right now who actually is a rocket scientist. He helped to design rockets that went up into space. Tremendous. But 
The same human mind that can give us rocket science can also give us egregious rationalization. To justify what should not be justified, to rationalize, to use the mind to tell lies to ourselves and to other people, right? And I also talk in that section of the chapter about the disastrous power of self-deception. There's a lot of lying that people do to one another, but the most sad and dangerous kind of lying is the lying that we do to ourselves. Um, and, and so I wanted to highlight something that is not adequately highlighted in most modern moral thinking following from the Enlightenment, and that is that human reason is not infallible. Even the human reason that is, that is offered by smart, thoughtful Christians who go to church is not infallible. We can, we can um, lie to ourselves and rationalize all kinds of things. And the most dangerous people are those unaware of their own capacity for rationalization, who, if they think they have thought it, they're pretty confident that it is right. There's a word for people like that. It's proud. And Christians are not supposed to be proud in this way. We're supposed to be humble. I mean, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. It is also something that Jesus teaches explicitly, and it is a good, um, it is a good point to keep in mind. And I, <laughs> how many students I've had or opponents I've had um, who I wish I could just get to realize the first step in wisdom is realizing that you might just be wrong and that there might be something more to learn. Um, I have changed my thinking about a number of things over my career, um, and in some circles, to change your mind is viewed as weakness or um, uh, lack of clarity about convictions. Maybe changing our mind means sometimes we've learned something and we're growing a little bit. So anyway, so the upper, um, upper right box, at the positive side, I want to say this. Serious followers of Jesus are serious readers of Scripture and serious students of the great resources that are offered there. Um, people who are trying to think more clearly. Uh, people who are trying to be more shaped into that form of character that Jesus in the New Testament teaches. But also serious followers of Jesus are aware that we are capable of rationalizing and self-deceiving in almost any circumstance, especially when when what Jesus would have us do cuts against what we feel like doing at a given time. Next slide. Um, I, I was thinking of two antidotes for self-deception and rationalization. The first one is in Paul's great passage in Romans 12, and I call this nonconformity through transformation. You, hope, you may have memorized this one somewhere along the way uh, in church. Um, you want to say it out loud with me and shout it out for the people at home? All right. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's keep that slide up. Look at a couple of themes here. I, I see this. Paul is saying, I think from his Jewish background, 
we used to think that what God wanted us to offer was sacrifices at the temple. But what God wants us to offer is the sacrifice of ourselves. Lay your entire self down at the altar, I think Paul is saying. That is the living sacrifice that is holy and acceptable to God. That is true worship. I think he's then saying that when we do that, we are enabled to not be conformed to this world and to the loyalties and patterns and behaviors of this world, but instead we can become transformed. How? Upper right box. Paul says, look at the gushy upper right box at this time by the renewing of your mind. So that's something to think about. Our minds must be renewed like every other part of us. The idea seems to be we become able to have our minds renewed as a consequence of laying our entire selves down on the altar for God. And then we are able to discern. Discernment is a key word in this entire series. Discernment is to see clearly, to choose rightly. As we do that, we can discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's look at the next slide, Julie. Um, this one is, is less, well, less often memorized, but I think it's just as important a passage. And so if you feel like reading out, let's do that one too, okay? Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And this is my prayer, that your love may overflow more and more with knowledge and full insight to help you to determine what is best so that in the day of Christ you may be pure and blameless, having produced the harvest of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ for the glory and praise of God. That's a great passage. What, it's complicated in its structure, but I think it goes like this. It is love, abundant love, the love of God to us, our love that we respond to God with. It is love, abounding love, that enables clearer thinking. Love as the key to better thinking. That, I think, that'll preach, Jim. Jim, that'll preach. I'm in a Baptist church in the South. I get a little bit of accent in there. I try. I just, I wasn't raised in the South. I'm not good at it, okay, but I'm trying. That'll preach, my brother. Okay, so love unlocks the door to knowledge. Have you ever known anybody who had plenty of head but not a lot of love? They could reason clearly. Oh, oh, oh. But where was the love? I think Paul is saying love is the key to knowledge. And so, love unlocks the possibility to discern again or determine what is best. The goal being a life that is pure and blameless, fruitful, all made possible by Jesus. All right, so, so that's what I, what I want to do with the upper right box. Let's now move to the upper left box, the next slide. This one is called the way of seeing. And I start with this quote. My professor, Larry Rasmussen, used it. I, I think he said it was an old Confucian quote. 90% of what we see comes from behind our eyes. Aha. Uh -huh. Take that to work. Put it on the office door. 
people will say, you are so smart, can we promote you and give you more money, right? That's what's going to happen because you came to church today, okay? So, there you go. 90% of what we see comes from behind our eyes. Um, I, I tell my students sometimes, you look out from behind your eyes and you see what's going on in this room, but what you see is not the same thing as what the person next to you is seeing and what the person next to them is seeing, what the person next to them is seeing. And I'm quite convinced that every one of you is seeing this experience in a different way. Another way to say is you're hearing different things, you're discerning different things, you're processing with, you might say, your processing vision, you might say. You're bringing you into the process. There's not just an objective experience, there's all of us bringing what comes from behind our eyes into our lives, right? So, 90% of what we see, if that is true, if it comes from behind our eyes, then that means there's something more to seeing reality than just reality itself. It's our processing grid. It's what we bring. It's how we discern reality. The, way, the term we use for this um, in ethics is moral vision. Moral vision. A little bit different from physical vision but it's how you see the world. And how you see the world then determines, you might say, how you interpret the data that your eyes process. Jesus talks a surprising amount about vision, about what you see. Be careful how you see, he says at one point. Um, in the upper, let's, if, in the box, can we go back to the, that box diagram? Um, Glenn Stassen, who initially came up with this chart, liked to identify specific things that he thought were important in discernment, especially in social ethical issues, including how we see the power structures and authorities in this world. Like, for example, when a police car pulls up beside you, what do you see? Do you see a threat? Or do you see a friend? A lot has to do with your experiences of life, doesn't it? Right? Right? Um, when a governor or president appears on TV, what do you see? And does it depend on the party? Right? Um, when the principal of the school calls you about your child, <laughs> what do you see besides sheer raw terror and panic? Right? Um, but also, um, Threat, the threat perception is important. What are the greatest threats to the well-being of you, your family, in this world? How do you perceive that? Um, what is your understanding of how society changes or how life changes in general? And in general, um, are you open to, are you committed to truthfulness and are you open to learning new things? So how this is supposed to work, again, to go back to how this is supposed to work, is that Christians are committed to the truth. And I would say not just biblical truth, but, but the truth out there in the world. Christians are people who want to understand what is going on for real and to discern it accurately. We are committed to the truth. We are committed to living truthfully and to speaking truthfully. Um, we are always open to learning new things. We try to see the world the way that Jesus saw the world as best we can. 
Um, in relation to all areas of life, we try to see clearly. Remember when Jesus said, um, you hypocrite, why do you see the speck that is in the other person's eye? Remember this? And what was that? And miss the huge old tree trunk coming out of your eye. Uh, he, I think people must have really laughed their heads off when he said that. Do you know anybody like that? Have you ever been like that? The kind of person who sees the, the little sins of other people very clearly while missing the big old problems that are in your own life, in our own life. <coughs> this is just one of many examples of Jesus talking about vision. So let's go to the next slide. Ways in which our seeing can go wrong. Our moral perceptions can become damaged for a number of reasons. Um, we can be taught particular moral blind spots and accept them as uh, reality. For example, what if your parents taught you that everybody who is poor is poor because they're lazy? Okay. And so every time, and you believe them when they taught you that. So every time you see a poor person, you think, I wish there weren't so many lazy people in the world. What that would say is that you were socialized, you or I were socialized to see that particular aspect of the world in a certain way, and it has distorted, in my humble opinion, has distorted one's perception of reality on that point, right? Um, I would say that families and uh, societies and cultures and even religions can sometimes teach us to see the world the wrong way. Um, many of us were raised in churches in which we were taught to see LGBTQ people as damaged. That there's something intrinsically wrong with such persons by their own willful choice. This is a church that has decided that that is a very bad perception of the world that must be abandoned. And I'm glad that this church has made that decision. Many churches have not. So um, religions can teach people to see the world the wrong way. Families, cultures, parents. Um, also, sometimes religion is the most uh, active culprit in leading people to think that they can never learn anything new. <laughs> I was taught the truth by my pastor, Jim. Pastor Jim knows all. Therefore, I cannot learn anything from anybody else. Um, I know that Pastor Jim does not do that, but we know, all, we know pastors who do communicate that kind of message, right? The all-knowing pastor or theologian or author or whatever. Or we allow forces that are alien to Jesus to shape the way that we see things. Let's go to the next slide. Um, one example where Jesus talked about vision has to do with how we see money. Paul Knowlton has a book. Do you have your book with you, Paul? Jer yeah, Paul Knowlton has a book called Better Capitalism. It's about how we think about economic life. Paul is one of my students. Jeremy is one of my students. Um, and uh, this theme is important in that book. How do we think about money? Here's a passage from Jesus. You want to you wanna read this one out with me as well? Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust consume and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust consumes and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Is there more to the slide, Julie? No, I guess not. Okay. Um, Jesus goes on to say um, that basically, um, well, let me see if I can find it. It's in Matthew 6. Because I want to get that vision image. Yeah, verse 22 of Matthew 6. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. There was a teaching at the time about the evil eye, and the evil eye had to do with stinginess and greed. What I think Jesus teaches a lot in the Gospels is that people see money wrongly. They think that it will secure true happiness, that it will provide a kind of a bulwark against um, all the threats of life, and that it matters more than it does. And, um, and so Jesus warns about misperceptions of material goods. And a lot of Matthew 6 is about, um, is about this. So money is something, money in the financial arena is something that people often have misperceptions of, at least according to Jesus. But there's a couple, there's two others that I want to name um, that are on my mind these days. One is people who have been trained to respond to difference and otherness with hierarchical and biased thinking, right? So uh, people, for example, who've been, who've been trained to look at, say, men as better than women, or one race as better than another race, or people who are uh, disabled to, as less than, or whatever. So many of us um, experienced a mistraining of our perception so that we learn to look at people in a hierarchy where some people are worth more than others. That has to be unlearned for a lot of people, right? Here's another one that's interesting that you, I'm sure wouldn't come to mind. Um, but I just read a dissertation about this. Um, 114,696 words. I've read it twice. This is my life, okay? But anyway, um, this dissertation said, it's about the environment. This, this dissertation said that many people have been trained to look at other creatures, land, water, um, air, as merely uh, natural resources to be exploited, as opposed to fellow inhabitants of a common home. In other words, one reason that we've done so much damage to God's creation is because we didn't see our kinship with and participation in God's creation. We saw God's creation as something to be dominated, used, bought, sold, exploited. Um, and some people read the, new, the Bible that way. Um, have dominion over the earth was understood to be you can do whatever the heck you want with, God, with, the, with the earth. And so one reason we are in a pretty bad eco ecological situation is because we perceived creation wrongly. Um, something to be used, something alien from us, something to be bought and sold, carved up, parceled out, made money off of, as opposed to um, inhabitants in a common home and what we do to the creation we do to ourselves. So 
There is, this dissertation argues that we need a conversion in the way that we see creation. And we need whatever path gets us there, uh, whether it's relation to animals, whether it's uh, house, you know, animals that we have in our home, or uh, heading out to the lake, or whatever helps us to get reconnected to creation. Um, so I ask you to think as we, as we prepare to wrap up today about this issue of perception. Um, part of following Jesus faithfully is learning to see reality rightly. And this may involve, uh, you might say, corrective surgery on our vision. And so something for you to ask yourself, something for me to ask myself at any time is, what, where do I need corrective surgery? Um, because none of us sees as clearly as Jesus would have us see. And um, when we see wrongly, we discern wrongly, and we often will decide wrongly. So um, here's how I would like to conclude our last slide for this morning. Um, in the arena of rationalization and self-deception, our goal should be to try to correct these patterns where we see them with Christ's love and with purposeful nonconformity with the way that the world functions and thinks. How we correct faulty moral vision is by trying to learn to see through Jesus' eyes and to be willing to, um, to be corrected in our vision where it is wrong. In general, I would say that Christians, like all people, must be always, 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 always open to correction, always open to repentance, to, to learning new things, always humble and teachable. There is a slogan from the Reformation, Semper Reformanda. The idea is the church must be always reforming, um, just as individual Christians must be always open to repentance. Um, now, the interesting thing about it, and again, I'll brag on this church, the decision that this church made to reform its teaching and practice in relation to LGBTQ inclusion was an example of Semper Reformanda. When we change in ways that are unfamiliar or unwelcome to others, we will often have to pay a price. This church and many others have paid a price. Individually, you might pay a price for changing your mind about something. But in principle, that is always a possibility if we are following Jesus, aware of the need to always learn new things, and open to growth. So, so next time, what we're going to do is go to my, my favorite box. It's the third lower box on the lower right. Can you, uh, Julie, can you pull up the, um, the overall chart for the last thing we'll look at this morning? The last one on the lower left is called embodied context, and that's where we will go next. I think this is the most interesting because basically what this one teaches is that our bodily life experiences, the memories, experiences, persons, loyalties, ideologies to which we are most connected, these are always at work in, our, in shaping our thinking and living, sometimes constructively and often not constructively. So that's where we will go next.